Oh, I can barely walk today. Ever since our Pacific Ocean decided that it was going to stop producing those magical little ripples called waves, I've been on the Run Swim Run program, which is a great workout, by the way. I used to do Run Swim Runs a lot back when I was a little kid in junior guards, and then I forgot about them. It's something that's almost so simple it's overlooked. When people ask about training to surf big waves or all these high-tech workouts, I swear, doing a run-swim-run in soft sand is the best kind of training that you can do. But as a result, oh my god, I I just tried to bend down to pick up a pen. I could barely do it. Um, But it feels really good. There's different choices that we can make when the waves go flat on us, and one is to either tailspin into Netflix and ice cream and copious amounts of masturbation or run some runs. This episode is with Alan Lovewell. Alan is the founder of Real Good Fish. He started Real Good Fish as a solution to reconnect our communities to the ocean and local fisheries. Alan has spent time working with the Nature Conservancy and Conservation International in Indonesia. He was a Sea Grant Fellow with the West Coast Governors Alliance for Ocean Health at NOAA's Northwest Fisheries Science Center and Southwest Fisheries Science Center. Whew, that was a mouthful. And in 2014, he won Entrepreneur of the Year in Monterey County. In this conversation, I learned a lot about salmon. I learned a lot about a number of different species of fish off the California coast, what many of the issues that these fish are facing are, and what we can do about it. Alan's a great storyteller. He knows a lot. This was an information-dense podcast in the best kind of way. So... Without further preamble, please welcome Alan Lovewell. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. It's not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. With the example of salmon, you know, they live a three-year life cycle, and their life starts at the headwaters of a lot of these big rivers along our coastline. And the first thing they have to do is survive their first year in the river, make sure they're not predated upon, or that uh, the water's not too hot to basically cook them, right? That's the first year. Or that they get enough nutrients as well. Oh, yeah, that there's food there as well. Absolutely, and they have the right habitat. They can hide. Yeah. Part of it is being able to go under the cover of of plants. Right. Right. Are they hiding from uh, waterfowl? Um, They're hiding from all sorts of predation, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, waterfowl... Um, they're hiding from bigger fish. So if they can find, you know, tight root clusters to be hiding in, they're also trying to get shade. A big part of it is to try to cool off, you know, in the summer months, especially, you know, when we have 110 degrees in the central Valley, I mean, that kind of temperature is, you know, raising the temperature in the rivers and potentially cooking those fish. Right. So, and we've, we've structured the river systems now so that it's just this one deep flowing river and they don't have the, uh, the same f- kind of floodplains that they used to. Exactly, right? All those little tributaries, those are all sort of nature's way of protecting specific areas and building uh, resilience within that system, right? So that if there's a stressor, stressor in one tributary, another tributary could be right. okay and protected and protect that stock, right? And when you remove those tributaries and remove that estuary and system, now you're sort of getting into the mono type god damn we're always trying to outsmart nature i know (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah i mean isn't there's uh if there's one lesson to be learned with uh humanity in in terms of our our uh obsession with you know our predestined what do you call it our manifest uh manifest Manifest destiny destiny, yeah you know i mean we're we're still very much we're taught it in terms of the westward expansion but you know it's still very much part of our 
culture and society and the way we think. Um, and you see it too, again, in the rivers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, one thing I learned about salmon recently was was that uh, importance that they fatten up in the rivers before they reach the ocean. Because it, it makes sense, but I've never really thought about the full life cycle of salmon uh, in the sense that they need to fatten up in the rivers because when they get to the ocean, it's not guaranteed that they're going to have food right away. Absolutely. And they're not fully grown. Right. Yeah, I mean, the risks, you know, out there in the ocean, you know, multiply big time. Yeah. You know, and uh, being able to find food in the rivers, um, being able to, um, you know, make their way effectively through. I mean, right now we've got all the pumps and we've got the dams that just, you know, prohibit a lot of these um, young salmon to pass. Uh, so what do they do? How, how does that work? Because I think a lot of people are like, okay, so we have the dams. How did the salmon make their way over the dams? It's such a badass fish. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's like, yeah, they're phenomenal, and I think it's amazing that we actually have this species to even discuss and talk about and use an exa- as an example about you know our connection to the ocean, our connection to um, our food source, a really important food source, and that it's a charismatic species. You know, we're not talking about um, a little goby. You know, for example, yeah. like <laughs> no one would get really excited wah, about wah, it. Wah. Yeah. <laughs> Like, it's hard to have that kind of conversation. But with a salmon, we all admire it for its tenacity. Ability to climb a waterfall. Exactly. You know, have you ever seen those slow motion videos of the salmon jumping up and climbing up the waterfalls? Oh, it's phenomenal. It's I mean, crazy. And they're doing it to die, right? That's the other thing. It's like they know they're going up these rivers. And it's not because they're going up there to, like, big, some big party, you know, up the river. They're going up there to spawn and die. You know, and they're exerting all of their energy, everything that they've, their whole life has culminated into that one moment, into that like series of waterfalls or that hundreds or thousands of miles that they're swimming. Like that's the culmination of their life. Truly great Americans right there. I know, right? I know, seriously. Storming the beaches of Normandy. (laughs) (laughs) And so you see that and how ferocious they are when they're, you know, when they're climbing those waterfalls like it's it's magnificent and i think they're that those images resonate they stick in our mind um not because they're just beautiful images but because we know what they're doing so in california how do the salmon make their way uh through a dam so they typically have uh you know a series of gates and locks that um are ladders basically so uh what's happening is that the salmon uh, are climbing up these ladders that have been made by like Army Corps of Engineers, right? And they're basically man-made waterfalls. So they're stepping up and with pools. So it's a, it's a series of, um, you know, waterfalls with pools so that they can rest. It's a big part of between each leap. They need to be able to recover, get their energy back, and then make the next leap up. So um, yeah. there's this artificial pathway that's, that's made. Uh, in the instance of salmon uh, repopulating our ocean and going downstream actually most of the salmon that we eat or the salmon that's being caught is hatchery fish and a lot of folks don't know that that actually when we think about wild salmon that's partly true right Um, there is a really small stock of of wild salmon out there that are living their full life cycle uninhibited by humans um, but the large majority of salmon have come from hatcheries. They've been tagged, so they get a radio frequency tag on their nose when they're you know, yay big. Um, millions of these tags are being put in these fish, and it dates them, tells what plant they came from, um, what genetic stock. Uh, and then they're trucked and released into the ocean or released at the headwaters of these rivers to sort of program them that this is where home is so that they come back to that river when they go live their two-year, three-year life cycle out in the ocean, right? Okay, so they're dropped off at the headwater as babies. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, And then they go out into the ocean. They go live for a few years. And do they, they, uh, what are salmon's migration, salmon migration patterns? My understanding is that they are actually, they're they're navigating, circumnavigating the Pacific largely. So they're, they're, you know, making... Uh, I'm not sure what direction they're going, but they're they're going all the way out to Japan and coming back. 
<laughs> and that's a part of the you know the salmon's life cycle that we don't even see. You know Here's, what I mean? It's yeah, a we're, hero- we're like we're like totally enamored with impressed with what they do in the river but never mind going out and navigating the pacific yeah hero's journey right there mm-hmm. yeah it's surprising me that um that pixar hasn't picked up this narrative i know come on <laughs> yeah give him some eyebrows make him charismatic i know exactly uh finding nemo three uh so and then they can find their way back to that exact same river mm-hmm. yeah i'm not sure how it's a, some sort of chemical response and then they swim back up that river. They climb the ladders. Right. They spawn. Right. Then the babies go back down the ladders. And mm-hmm. then we try and uh, kind of re... So we're trying to reintroduce them. But but it's something like 95% of the salmon have gone away. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Why is that? Um, largely because of the habitat issue that we were discussing earlier in terms of not having the appropriate place to spawn. Um, the drought has been and droughts before have had a huge impact in terms of having enough water running up the rivers that they can actually access some of these um, important habitats. Um, But then also the temperature, again, of the rivers, if there's not enough water, the temperature rises, um, and they can only survive in certain temperature. Fries them. Fries them, exactly. Um, But a big part, yeah, is the habitat that these, you know, these rivers and tributaries have been modified extensively through, you know, development through logging through you name it all kinds of stressors um increased sedimentation in the rivers means that where they like to spawn which is like gravelly right uh, habitat there's yeah not as much of that around right gotcha. so there's not as what's called recruitment not as good recruitment in terms of you know survival rate right. what are the big rivers that salmon are spawning in in california yeah so the sacramento delta uh, you know, connects all the way through to the San Joaquin, um, the, where is it? The Klamath? I'm not sure. Klamath, yeah, Klamath's a big one. Yep. And I'm trying to think of it. Yeah, there's a few of them. I think there's four or five. Maybe. And are there dams along all of those rivers? Most of them. There's Most several them. pumps, yeah. And those are pumps that are moving water again from the rivers into sort of Central Valley. And so are they being used maps for... out there that are really impressive to see. Are they being used for hydroelect- uh, hydroelectric? Um, no, these pumps are being used, again, to divert water okay. into the Central Valley and down to L.A. So it's, it's a you know, technique to keep the water from going into the delta. Gotcha. How'd you get into all this? That's a great question. Uh, I grew up on a, on a, in a small coastal community uh, on the East Coast called Martha's Vineyard, which is now known for... Uh, you know, it's appeal as a tourist destination. Um, you know, a lot of celebrities go there to, to spend their summers. But before that, it was an old whaling town um, and, a, and a community of folks that really were tied, um, intrinsically tied culturally and economically to the health of the ocean, right? Through, again, through whaling, through fishing. Um, you know, it's a maritime port. And, you know, Growing up through the 80s and 90s, saw a transition from, you know, a resource economy towards a tourism economy. Uh, and, you know, my father is a journalist, and he interviews uh, fishermen throughout our community. And I was, as a kid, I was going on assignment with him. No way. Yeah. So, so he, was, he was a local journalist for newspaper. Exactly. Yeah, and photographer. Oh, that's cool. And I got to tag along with him, you know, whether it was, yeah, going to the next fire and, you know, talking to the folks there or, again, going to a fishing boat and talking to a fisherman who is, you know, experiencing one difficulty or another. Right. Whether it was cuts in quota or whether it was, you know, changes in management regimes, Um, you know, all the stories that he was covering were very personal with these guys. You know, this was their livelihood and had a huge impact not only for them, but for our community and how we identified ourselves. How old were you when you were going around there? Uh, I have distinct memories, you know, when I was five or six years old, you know, I remember um, when they put in one of the first herring runs. So similar again, as salmon, they're an adramous fish. That means that they live in both saltwater and freshwater. Another species that's Anadromous. 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 Yeah, I don't know how to spell it. Don't ask me to spell it, but... It's, it's a good word. It's a good word, yeah. 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 Uh, striped bass, that's another anadromous fish. Mm-hmm. So you can think of any fish that's going between salt and fresh. Okay. So 
Um, yeah, so you were going, you were tagging along in these stories, exactly. Sherlock yeah. Holmes style. Yeah, absolutely. You know, not not uh, is against my will, but you know, well, <laughs> I learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you did. I'm, I'm sure you you learned how to ask questions. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you learned how to follow a story, and probably got the sense from a young age that uh, th- it's not all figured out. Right. You know, like there, I find that most journalists who I talk to or people who have been around journalists just have the, the wherewithal that, um, government hasn't figured it all out and it's not all, all taken care of. Like there are a lot of systems in chaos and they're in rapid transition and it's, it's up to individuals in a community many times to, to stand up and to, um, kind of take matters into their own hands. I think that one, like, one really sad, like, a sad reality is that a lot of people in school get the sense that um, because a teacher is telling them what to do, because there's this authoritarian figure who says, like, you know, sit down, don't ask questions, just take a test, regurgitate it, they kind of develop that mindset throughout life of like, oh, well, like, no one would would let a species go extinct because there are people who handle that, right? Right, right, Whereas, Whereas, like, obviously what what you're doing now, there's an element of taking matters into your own hands. Right, and I think largely what we're trying to do is inspire other folks as well to do the same thing and create a system, create a, in this case, a business that enables folks to do that. Um, and to your point, you know, that experience growing up at a young age, I learned very early on how, you know, the larger world impacts an individual and their family and the community. Um, but the other way around, how one individual can totally change a community and change the world. And I think we often lose sight of that to your point in terms of how our education system typically operates, um, you know, in terms of how we think about our jobs and our employment, how we think about our lives. I think we typically think of ourselves as sort of, you know, opportunistic people who, you know, are just trying to get by and trying to make a good living for ourselves. And I think that's fine. Um, but I think there's a lot of folks out there who are either tied into or, um, already have, uh, a growing curiosity and drive to imagine a better world, right. To imagine, um, that we all could figure out some of these problems, uh, together, you know, without the guidance say of, you know, policy or management or, or, corporations right that we actually have the power and this is a unique thing in in our society and in in this country you know speak about independence day coming around the corner you know that's one of the founding sort of principles i believe of this country is that you know there's this incredible freedom um not to just do what you want and you know uh live in, in a chaotic world but to do what you want in the sense of create the world that you want to live in. Right. You know? Yeah. It's, it's uh, freedom of choice, mm-hmm. right? Free, freedom to, to ask questions and then act on, um, act on decisions that, that you want to make. And, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting kind of like flip in consciousness and the way that you see the world when, when you kind of recognize that y- you are a part of this world and your actions do matter. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people from, I've seen this like with my generation of people who f- feel like they've followed the rules their whole lives and now they're 200 grand in debt trying to get their master's degree. And then there's no, when they get out of school, there's no jobs for them. And they're like, what the fuck? I right. followed all the rules right. and now I'm in the hole. Right. So that uh, be, a lot of people are now forced to think critically, kind of take matters into their own hands and be like, all right, who do I want to be? How do I want to navigate this system? Right. Um, because it's not, I'm, no one's getting spoon fed. Right. Absolutely. And you see that. And I've seen this, especially again, in my unique position in terms of working with fishermen. Um, they are in constant adaptation mode. I mean, they every day the choices that they make are how do I adapt to the current situation and how do I make decisions 
um, with the information that I have or I don't have. Right. And I, and I think there's something remarkable. This is why I think largely I was drawn to this industry and drawn to, you know, again, this intersection between, you know, the wild and society or nature and society or, um, you know, the ocean and land. I mean, whatever you want to call it, there's this seam that exists between, you know, what's happening in the oceans and what our lives are like here on land that I'm really drawn to. I'm really fascinated by that intersection. Um, from a fish, you know, coming from the deep depth of the Monterey Bay canyons onto a boat and then from a boat onto the dock and then from the dock, where does it go? Right. And there's this narrative, there's this story, there's this whole process, um, natural and social that has come together to make that a reality. Right. And those intersections, those connections, um, that are being built and formed, are enriching. I, mean, I think most people aren't aware of it. 99% of people, this isn't part of our daily process and, and thinking, you know, when we look at a menu at a restaurant, you know, and see salmon on the menu or, you know, when we go to a grocery store and decide whether or not we're going to pick between pork, chicken, beef, or fish as our protein. These, those narratives are lost long before you know, we get to make those decisions in our life. And what I want to see happen is I want those narratives brought into our lives. I want those decisions to be informed by this idea that something miraculous, something phenomenal um, has taken place so that we have the ability, you know, to make that decision. Right. Yeah. With, with uh, better information. Exactly. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a burden. And I think a lot of people talk about transparency and traceability and it sounds a lot like a burden that, Oh, you know, Oh, we gotta like, we gotta know now where our stuff, our food comes from. We gotta know where, you know, I don't have time for that. Ignorance is bliss. Right. There's a certain ignorance is bliss, but what I would, what I would say is that these narratives and the story is enriching. It, it, It builds connections. It's fascinating. Um, you know, there's nothing like a good story from a fisherman, you know, honestly, I think everyone could agree that like fishermen probably, if you get a chance to talk to a fisherman, have some of the best stories there are out there. You're truly the son of a journalist. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Follow that story. I know. So what, what is it that you do? We haven't really, uh, kind of given that overall. Yeah. Yeah. Overall pitch. So you can think of us as a you know, community supported agriculture program, like a CSA, but for local fishermen. So what emerged in the eighties with the CSA movement was this response from farmers, uh, that, you know, they weren't making enough money, uh, selling their products out in the commodities market. Um, and the community wasn't getting access to their product as well, because it was all being funneled into a larger distribution system. And it wasn't until around 2007 that some fishermen out in Maine and in Massachusetts saw the analog. They saw that, hey, look, um, our loves, our lives are getting increasingly more difficult. Um, you know, the global market is driving the price down, and you know, the cost of fishing is going up with increased regulations and management, um, increased fuel costs. And these guys were having a harder and harder time to make a living to the extent that, you know, they knew that within a year or two, they wouldn't have a livelihood anymore, given these conditions. And so the response was to build their own market, you know, was to say, look, um, we're going to cut out all the middlemen. We're going to cut out the whole global distribution system. We're going to create the most simple supply chain we know possible, which is to get our product process it ourselves and distribute it ourselves to community members. And that started the revolution of these, what's called now community supported fisheries. And if folks are really interested in learning more about it, there's a great organization out there that has a, that acts sort of like an umbrella organization for, you know, community supported fisheries like ours throughout the country called localcatch.org. And what they act as is a central resource for folks anywhere in the country to learn more about where they can get fish direct. Would you equate it uh, to the farmer's market system? Like similar to that, like a farmer growing the food and then just distributing it to the local community? It's a similar, yeah. It's, I mean, okay. it's a similar type of concept in the sense that a farmer's market is a place where farmers are gathering and 
um, you know, community members are gathering and, you know, exchanging money and food. Right. Right. And with this model specifically, it's, we're not pulling everyone together in one place. We're taking care of the distribution. We're taking care of the processing. Okay. So that we've got over 80 different pickup locations throughout the central coast where folks come and they gather and they pick up their seafood from these locations. Gotcha. So you serve as the distributor. Exactly. Okay. So we're sort of an intermediary um, that is there basically to get the fish from the fishermen to process it and then to distribute it direct to these different locations. Largely because when fishermen come in, they don't want to do all that other stuff, right? right. They want to come in. Have, They've a, spent have a beer. 10, 12 hours on the water. <laughs> Throw some aloe vera on their face exactly. and lay back. <laughs> the last thing they want to do is pick up a fillet knife, start filleting their fish, uh, and then pack it in the coolers, pack it in a van, and distribute it, right? So that's sort of where you fit in. That's the that's the unique um, value that we provide, as well as sharing that story, right? Another thing is fishermen, they like to be on the water. Um, they're relatively solitary individuals, you know, working out on the water is, um, by nature an isolating endeavor and, you know, unless you have a good podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's funny. I'm wondering if any of our guys listen to podcasts now, um, and if not, what podcasts we should have them listen to. It'd be funny. Um, but you know, they're, they're definitely out there, um, loving their life. You know, they love their, you know, it's as it is the wild, wild west out there. You know, it's as west as you can go from uh, our port, <laughs> yeah. from California. Um, so, you know, national waters. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think we have to celebrate that. We have to respect that. And I think there is, you know, in, in certain markets or certain initiatives, this idea that we need to make fishermen more, um, public figures, when they don't really want to be public figures, there are some guys that do, and without a doubt, you know they should be supported, elevated, and, um, and listened to. But for the large part, again, because the nature of the industry and the job, like you know, I don't think we need to expect them to, you know, go out there and, you know, raise, um, you know, be fully active participants right. in our society in that way. So, so j- just to clarify, so before you guys came along right and, and i'm not just you sure. guys but bef- but the previous model was that fishermen would go out they would come in they would sell their fish to a number of dis- different distributors that or would just go, one or they just might one, just have one. Yep. okay but the price was being driven down um so by they the were global market by the global market so they weren't making as much money but then they all got together and said well wait why don't we be able to why don't we set our own prices Right. Distribute it to our local community. Right. And tell the story of f- local fish because people want that. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yep. And part of it is, it too, is uh, getting access to fish that is otherwise, you know, again, being exported or is otherwise doesn't have a market. So we have a lot of examples that we've, uh, we've delivered over 30 different species from the Monterey Bay, which I think is remarkable, especially That's when amazing. you go to a grocery store and again, you, you look at what's available and the seafood counter as a whole, and especially when you look at what's available local. And if you're looking at just local species, typically at this time of year, you're going to see salmon, you're going to see lingcod, and maybe rockfish. Beyond that, you're going to be hard-pressed to find any diversity, again, from a local standpoint. But for us, you know, what we feel strongly about is that there's fish out there that these guys are catching that might not have a market. And these are fish that are delicious. Um, and from a sustainability standpoint, it's an opportunity for us as consumers to take some of our consumptive pressure off of the species that we're all familiar with, like salmon, like sea bass, like codfish, um, shrimp. You know, these are all species that are facing a growing uh, and tremendous pressure and driving many of them, you know, uh, into right. extinction. We need to divert some of that consumptive pressure towards species that are in high abundance. That are often more healthy right um and what are the, what are those species um so you can think about it as the, the smaller fish right you know and so um you know the anchovies the sardines um the mackerel like for example just this past week 
we've been seeing a lot of jack mackerel come through the bay and and actually they're not that small you can think of mackerel usually as being you know holy mackerel yeah oh you know only a couple you know like less than a foot long but these these mackerel are like three to five pounds they're phenomenal and actually when you cook them up they taste just like yellowtail so it's you know it's this there's this amazing um education and awareness and and surprise you know that comes with it and i think is really cool that's it's it's adventurous you know there's a certain amount of like adventure in the kitchen that's taking place when folks you know cook up a fish that they've never had before right so would you say that the reason that certain species are getting um so pressed is because consumers like familiarity yeah is that the main reason where it's like okay like like when i go into the store I know exactly what I'm going to get. I have my like, all right, here's my my oatmeal that I'm going to get. Here's my half and half that I'm going to get. This is the brand of eggs that I've been getting since I was 11 years old. Right. I'm in a rush. Right. I don't want to, I don't need adventure. I don't need the paradox of choice. <laughs> I know what I want. It makes sense why, sure. why companies market to kids because they're going to stick with those habits for oh, the rest yeah. of their lives. Yeah. I think about it. It's like, it's like my brain just goes on autopilot when I go into the store. And I'm like, oh, well, here's my hummus that I've always been getting. I like this hummus. Yep. No, you're a great example of that. I right. mean, in, in our, our consumptive habits. I'm been, sorry about that. You've been I've, boxed. I've been duped. <laughs> Put you in a box. You got to break out of it now. Yeah, I know. Um, but yeah, up until I think through our adolescence, that's when we, you know, largely dictate dictate what our consumptive habits are going to be into adulthood and beyond. And, and so, you know, the unique opportunity that we found as well, I'm glad you brought this up is that we realized that, you know, providing seafood to adults is one thing, but what would it be like for, again, from a systems change standpoint, from a community empowerment standpoint, um, if we were to provide local seafood to kids, Right. And get them engaged in this conversation about what it means to be from a coastal community that has been endowed with a wonderful, beautiful, fragile resource at our doorstep. You know, the Monterey Bay in our example here. You know, what does it mean as an individual? What does it mean for us as a community to have that responsibility, but also to have that access? And up until now, you know, children weren't able to make that connection, largely because the only fish that they were ever getting, and we all know this, in fact, every single person I've ever talked to about this, all, you know, agree that the only fish that you ever have in school was fish sticks. I mean, you've had it and everyone's, I mean, any adult, multi-generational. I don't even like, know what fish, fish sticks are or what are fish sticks. Right? I don't know. I mean, it's like, it's a, it's like, it's a massive fish meat breaded uh and baked and dumped into a bunch of whole lot of tartar sauce to give it flavor but there's no there's no story there yeah or maybe there's a story there but a story that we don't probably don't want to hear it's a sketchy ass story it's a sketchy story (laughs) right and not one that's like tied to our community it's not tied to our Uh you know who we are you know as a coastal community it's a story about some huge ass boat in the bering sea catching a ridiculous amount of fish processing it on the boat you know into this amorphous you know fish stick breaded now they're shaped like dolphins like what kind of message are we sending the kids (laughs) you know (laughs) now they're eating little fried dolphins like come on that's not we don't want that they're not even fully grown dolphins (laughs) i know exactly yeah goddamn big fat dolphin on my tray if i want it yeah you know dolphins yeah, exactly. Past sexual maturity. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, before that, Post-reproductive dolphins. That's what I want. <laughs> okay. I don't know how we got there. Yeah. But, so, okay. So, yeah. So, so you're delivering the food to schools now. Is that right, right. So we've okay. got this program called Bay to Tray, right? And it's a beautiful story, if I don't say so myself, largely because... Um, you know, we're striving for the triple Because anything win. is better than baby dolphins. Exactly. That should be our, our slogan. Um, so. <laughs> beta, beta tray, because it's not baby dolphins. Right. <laughs> um, but we are using a bycatch species. So this is a species that's caught uh, and typically thrown overboard with the black cod fishery. So black cod is a, a very abundant species here on our coastline. 90% of that fish gets exported to Japan, where it's highly sought after. Our fishermen get a good price for that fish. Um, it's phenomenal if anybody's ever had it. Typically, if you go to a Japanese restaurant, they'll have it as miso black cod. And if you see it, I highly recommend trying it. Um, it's kind of like a gateway drug into 
black cod because it's got three times the omega threes as salmon. Black cod does. Yeah. Oh, wow. way healthier. So it's really good for your your heart, your brain, your hair, your skin, the whole whole thing. Um, really incredible. It's really unfortunate that we export so much of it. Anyways, so the bycatch in the species is what's called Pacific grenadier, and it's the exact opposite of salmon, which we're talking about, which is, you know, salmon is being a charismatic, iconic species. Grenadier is like, it's kind of eel-like, it's kind of slimy, um, a little bit. It's deep water fish. It, when it comes to the surface, its eyes are bulging out, its stomach's coming out of its mouth. It's just not a pretty fish by any means. But... The amazing thing is that when you fillet it, you end up with this white, beautiful fillet that's mild in flavor. Um, it's flaky and it's delicious. And so that's what we're serving to kids: is this you know abundant species that's otherwise being thrown overboard, dead. Um, we're buying it from fishermen now, and we are again providing it to children as a way to connect them to the ocean, to our fisheries to start at an early age and remind them and set them up for a life of, again, understanding that they're intrinsically tied to the health and well-being of our bay. And whether that means for them pursuing a career, you know, in marine fisheries or in marine science or, you know, selling fish or becoming a fisherman, the idea is that exposing children at that age, they're sponges. You know, they're soaking up all the information. And you see it. I go to these classroom visits that we do where we bring fishermen into the classroom to talk about their livelihood, to talk about fishing, to talk about the bay. And and if you go there and you experience it, you see how powerful that experience is for kids. Um, Largely because, you know, even for us as adults, we're not exposed to that lifestyle. We're not exposed to that industry. We're not exposed to what's happening out there, but a child, when they're exposed to that, they just nothing but questions, right? They want to know everything about squid. Yeah. They want to know everything about the sharks. Yeah. You know, they want to learn everything about the storms and the big waves that these fishermen have had to go through, right? They just light up. And what's cool about that too is then, you know, as I talked about earlier, fishermen are relatively um, solitary, solitary yeah. type folks, just right? With the wind in the face and the right. podcast in their ears. Exactly. <laughs> and... You know, they, they're not, you know, they're not celebrated. Right. You know, we just say that straight out. You know, these guys are making a hard living out there and no one really sort of, it's a pretty thankless job. But you, you put them into a classroom and they become rock stars immediately. You know, the kids just like, oh, just gravitate around them, you know, and especially if they bring a fish in with them, you know, the kids are just like poking the eyeballs, you know, they're touching the scales, you know, there's this visceral connection that's being made. Um, that, you know, they would not get in a book or in a, in, you know, in a classroom. Right. Yeah. And session. I, and the part of the story, uh, involving bycatch is such an important one. And most people don't think about that. Like when you think about, oh, they went out and they caught rockfish, the, the concept that they caught other fish besides rockfish. Right. And because those other fish didn't have a market, they were thrown back dead into the ocean right. is uh, a, a head spinner for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And to, to, inv- to, to have that part of the story come front and center for kids uh, is, a, is a super important part of it. Right. Because because uh, even to a six year old, I'm sure you'll get some kid that raised her hands and like, wait, so we just waste all that food, right? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? Right. Yeah. I mean, like you know, these are yeah, like you know, ten year old kids who absolutely are having that realization. It, it doesn't. You don't need a you don't need a PhD yeah. to understand how <laughs> you're crazy not adults. You're just children <laughs> who grew older. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder what we're setting ourselves up for. Right. The child revolution. Seriously, though. I mean, but that's it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier is that people haven't figured out what, what, like, we're kind of working it out as we go along. Right, right. And I think that's okay. Like, I don't think we need to go to kids and tell them we have all the answers. That's not our job as adults. No. You know what I mean? And I think we grow up with that expectation. We grow up with this idea that the adults know everything, and when you get older, you know everything. Right. Yeah. And it's sort of like, no, there's a lot of 
no, no one shit is- to figure out <laughs> yeah. along the way. Yeah. And there's no there. You know, we're all just continually trying to figure it out. And I think the sooner we can get kids thinking along that those lines, the more they're going to be active participants in problem solving. Yeah. They're going to be the next innovators. You know, they're going to be the next, you know, uh, who, you know. The Elon, Elon Musk, Musk of, of fish. Yeah, or whatever. Elon, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's all possible, you know, but it yeah. all takes, at the end of the day, and the only thing it takes is inspiration. All you got to do is inspire these yeah. kids. And yeah. then they, they're going to run off and do their own shit. I mean, that's what I did as a kid. I had no interest in school, but I did like, you know, building things. I knew I really liked systems. I knew I really liked, you know, creativity, um, art, you know, all these things. And so that's what I did at the end of the day, like after school, like I'd go home and I'd go run and build the next cool thing, you know, in my basement. And that was, you know, the childhood that, and that's where I got most of my educational experience, honestly, and everything else was just jumping through hoops. And I think that's obviously hard to communicate to kids that the education doesn't end at two o'clock, you know, when the bell rings, that education continues, you know, after that. And actually it's more fun because you get to do what you want to do. Yeah. Right. You don't have to do I mean, obviously there's the homework component and that's always a drag, but. Well, yeah, but you're out in the natural environment and you're learning with a, in a more visceral way. Right. Like go play out in the tide pools in your free time. You know, you can do that as long as your parents let you or not, but you know, just do do it. it. Yeah. If they say no. (laughs) Um, do you get to take kids fishing? Um, we haven't had a chance to do that yet. There's some liability yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't okay, know. we went out with 24, <laughs> we came back with 23. Good enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> good average here. Yeah. It's good average. Yeah. Um, that's super cool. And then the way that you make money with your business is that you, uh, by being the distributor and by, uh, kind of making those connections for fishermen, then you get a percentage of the sale. Is that the way yeah. that it happens? Kind of like yeah. a, a broker system? Kind of like brokering, yeah. A little bit, except where, instead of, like most brokers, are, they're just handling the deal. They're just sort of like, if you think about um, like real estate or something, you know, they're just making connections and then they're getting a cut on that. We're active participants, right? We're actively distributing. We're actively building relationships. We're actively processing um, building brand, telling story, oh, so social you, media, you I mean, fillet, all that stuff. You fillet the fish. Yeah, we fillet a lot of the fish, and we also have a partner process. Damn, I bet you're such a ninja at this point. <laughs> there are folks that are way better at flaying fish than I am, so I tr- I try to stay away from the flay nets. I mean, I can I can get down and I can flay my share of fish, but again, there's there's folks that are a lot better yeah. at it than me. Um, I'm better at the, again the the networking, the community building, the you know the business side of things, and right. just trying to make sure that you know. It's a lot of things to balance, you know, in terms of timing, in terms of resource availability, in terms of fishermen and their schedules, in terms of our set schedules, in terms of distribution, um, you know, the communication aspect of it. I mean, there's a lot that we have to do to sort of make a highly variable system on the ocean side come to a highly um, uh, scheduled, right, regimented system on yeah. land. What would you recommend uh, b- people eat? in terms of fish like what what do you think are the the healthiest and most sustainable yeah i mean we've been talking about black cod and i could say that you know black cod by far is one of the healthiest fish out there most abundant um, they breed like crazy yeah they're all over, i mean they, they hang out in the deep water of the canyons so they um you know they're relatively uh you know unimpacted from like a you know, human standpoint, other than the fishing pressure that we put on them. And that's highly regulated, you know, it's regulated at the federal level. Um, and you know, so that species, again, I think we can make a huge impact in our community, uh, by consuming that locally instead of trying to send it to Japan. Um, but again, we sort of have to pay the, the price that the Japanese folks would be wanting to pay. But at the end of the day, it's still cheaper than salmon. Right. It's still cheaper than a lot of fish that, you know, we normally halibut, a lot of fish that we normally see on them in the grocery store. What you, so that's, you know, that's the first one. I mean, there's a lot of them. But, yeah. But black cotter is a good yeah, one. Yeah. Just because it's, I think it's, it's a year round species yeah. as well. And so you don't have to think about it in terms of seasonality. You can right. think that if you want black cod, you should be able to go get it because it's a year round fishery. Yeah. Simple. Um, as opposed to say like Dungeness crab where you're like, Oh, when does Dungeness crab open in November to June? Okay. But most people don't know that. Most people think that Dungeons Crab is just the first couple months in the winter and then it sort of goes away, but really it actually goes into the beginning months of summer. So, you know, yeah. anyways, 
um, the seasonality aspect is oftentimes hard for folks, folks to think about. Um, but that said, you know, I think, you know, other species that, um, we should be thinking about as well are, are just the smaller species. And this, yeah. a lot of folks that are, you know, known in, in the world and sustainable fisheries will, will tout the same message, which is eat the small fish. Right. Right. And it was taught to me, um, a few years ago that if you really think about it, all the small fish were meant to be eaten. There's no small fish out there that live in long, uh, long and healthy life yeah. and prosperous life out in the ocean. Right. right? Sorry, bro. You didn't <laughs> no, like, you, know, you, you pick the short end of the yeah. stick from a, like you're reincarnated <laughs> re- in a <laughs> shitty species. Yeah. You're like, going to be running for your whole life. <laughs> yes. That is their job is to run and then be eaten. Right. Right. So, so if you think about that standpoint, like hopefully find enlightenment at some point along yeah, the way. Yeah. Hopefully it's fulfilling in the process, yeah. you know, hopefully they meet another nice sardine. Be able you to know? see one beautiful sunset. Yeah. Why then not? just get dragged to the bottom of the ocean by yeah. a predator. Or like swing alongside a great white shark just for a moment. Just you know? for a moment. Just how cool would that be? Yeah. You know? Well, I hope they get that those moments. Yeah, me too. You know, but... You ever, you ever, you ever watch Portlandia? <laughs> yeah. You ever see the Portlandia episode where they're, uh, they go to dinner and they ask for uh, the free range uh, chicken? Yes. And they're like... Did it live a happy life? <laughs> was it? Did it get any massages before yeah. it was any killed? Friends? Then they go off and <laughs> to see where he's like, well, we're just gonna take a second to go take a look where this uh, this chicken was was raised. And they go off and it was like raised by a cult. And, right, and they th- join the cult. They ju- join the cult. <laughs> All right, sorry, we're we're giving away the episode. Yeah. It's a good one. Yeah. Um, that's great, man. Yeah. yeah. Super cool. So. Those are the sort of simple, basic ideas around... Around what you do. Around what we do and, you know, from a consumer, what power you have. Again, this is all about sort of empowering folks. And I think... Telling um, that story. Yeah, telling that story and understanding that the purchasing decisions that we make in a grocery store, we all know this. I mean, we live in Santa Cruz. We live in the place where people are actively participating in these types of decisions. But um, I think from a larger community level, global community level, I think we all need to be reminded that there are ways in which we can reinforce our communities, there are ways in which we can reinforce our values, um, there are ways in which we can live a healthier, more fulfilling life, and part of it is being more aware, and part of it is making, um, you know, decisions uh, with, you know, a certain amount of... Um, mindfulness. Mindfulness, yeah, yeah exactly. And, yeah, and thought, follow that story, yeah, ask questions. You know, and it's, yeah, and it's and it doesn't have to be a burden. It can right. be fun. It can be just like these types of conversations that we're having here where we're just diving in a little bit. You know, we're just touching the surface, but we're really sort of talking about all the interesting story and complexities right. associated with what we do. And it doesn't have to be a simple story. It doesn't have to be this black and white, good and bad type dynamic. It can be just more like, hmm, isn't that fascinating or isn't that interesting? And and know that we're participating in a much complex, much more complex system right. than we see in the surface. What do you think about uh, farming fish? Um, it's yeah. I mean, to be honest, uh, it's like a lot of things with technology. It's, it can be used for good things. It can be right. used for bad things. And yeah, and I, I feel like it probably gets oversimplified a lot. It does. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that um, you know, there is an undisputed dependence on aquaculture these days uh since 2014 i believe uh aquaculture became 50 percent of the seafood production globally whoa so whether we like it or not our opinions on aquaculture don't really matter all that much in the sense that it's here and it's here to stay the question becomes how do we do it right how do we do it without screwing up uh, you know, the natural system, how do we, whether it's land-based or ocean-based, you know, how do we keep that in mind? How do we do so in a healthy way for us? That is to say that fish should be incredibly, um, nutritious. You know, there's obviously through a lot of types of, um, you know, uh, agriculture practices, we strip the nutrients out of a lot of vegetables. The same thing can happen to fish. Um, how do we do so responsibly with feed? One of the big issues right now is the conversion that it takes to produce one pound of fish that we eat. So we're talking about the small fish, uh, like sardines and underloved fish, that are typically being ground up into pellets and being fed to all different types of animals. But fish is one of the main uh, industries. Aquaculture is one of the main industries that these fish pellets are going into. 
and it takes uh, as high as you know 10 pounds of this fish feed to produce one pound of fish that we eat just the energy conversions are so poor and they're getting it down to say one to three where or three to one where three pounds of feed produces one pound of fish that we eat tuna or salmon Um, but that's still if you think about feeding the world feeding a population that's growing to nine billion you know we got to think about the efficiencies and how we're converting energy and and food is energy and so if we're taking three pounds of fish out of the ocean just so we can enjoy one pound on land that's not very efficient yeah right especially also considering the fact that over 40 percent of the food that we produce both on the land side and fish side is wasted how does that work i mean how is it wasted gets thrown away into landfills just shit that we eat off our plate is that, um, like that yeah i mean so basically from production standpoint there's the gleaning process or not gleaning but there's the um grading process where you know fishes or fish or produce has to meet certain criteria in terms of shape shape color um size the whole thing if they don't meet those criteria they, they get, get thrown away get thrown away um, oh so what we God, see in a grocery store <laughs> i know i know so to all the kids out there, there's a lot of problems in this world. It's pretty fucked up, but there's a lot of opportunities to fix it, right? Yeah. So here we are having this realization, right? 40% of opportunity. But there's great businesses yeah. that have emerged, right? There's this amazing business that emerged uh, called Imperfect Produce, and all they do is they distribute imperfect fruits and vegetables oh, to that's people. Cool. That's awesome, you know? Yeah. And, it, and, it, and each one tells us, each fruit, each vegetable tells a story about why it wasn't selected because of why it didn't make the grade, for the you know oh. for Whole Foods or it's like whoever the, you know it's like the short bus of vegetables. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a great business name right there. Someone's yeah. got someone's got to start that short bus vegetables. The ninth place award. <laughs> but you get it cheaper and it's yeah. just as delicious, just as nutritious, and right? It's more affordable, yeah. So yeah, and you're solving a major issue that we're facing, right? So that's that's just one of the reasons. The other reason is just mismatching our supply with our demand. Right, so we produce all this food, expecting people to eat it. Well, what if we don't eat it? Where does that food go? Imperfect vegetables, short bus. <laughs> yeah, that's where it should go. Yeah, that's where it should right? go. But a lot of it, and a lot of time, ends up just thrown away. Exactly. Yeah. In a grocery store too, you can imagine. You know, and this is why we do what we do in our business. Is you, you know, you look at that glass case of fish. They're betting that someone is going to buy that fish. There's no, there's no commitment made there. So what if no one buys that fish? Think of all the energy and effort that it took to put that fish in that glass case and no one bought it, right? And that happens. It happens a lot. And so, I mean, obviously that's why you see them doing hot bars and, and food bars so that they can use some of the stuff that would otherwise be thrown away, but there's still associated waste whereas this product is being thrown away. So, you know, again, with the idea of our business is that everyone's pre-bought their food. It's all pre-paid for. And so huh, we know did, exactly how much fish to deliver. Oh, well, how does that work? We're not speculating. What, what do you mean by that? So our, our members commit for a minimum of four deliveries. Okay. So cool, I could tell cool, you right cool. now how many people want fish next mm. week and then how many people want fish the following week. Oh, that's cool. So what that allows me to do is go to our fishermen and say, hey, look, we need to meet X demand. That's great. Right? It's, and so that addresses waste in a big way. Yeah, that seems like an issue that we will solve in the next y- number of years with more technology and and more data uh, at our disposal. Like yeah. you would, I mean, I, I, you would hope that. I mean, it's going to be not too long before all of your f- food is just delivered to your doorstep. Amazon. I just, hope not. Well, Amazon that scares just, me. Amazon just bought Whole Foods. You know. I know. I know. But I don't know if I. Yeah, I don't know. If I, I don't know how if I like it either. But I. I can Do you tell want you, like drone delivered? cherries to your doorstep well maybe mm, maybe <laughs> fuck yeah wait, 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 wait. that sounds amazing <laughs> Come, kyle do you want Our, an, an apple pie delivered to your doorstep whenever you want it that just sounds horrible doesn't I know, it i know no what? but there's something cool about going through your day and like Again, going to the grocery store and totally. Well, I think and that going to the farmers market, yes. you know, and, and talking to people, yes. and it's a social gathering. Yeah, you know, you cut out the whole. So, I mean, you can imagine in, in the future a world where we never have to leave our house, and there's yes. plenty of people who would love to have that 
world, you know, right. happen. And I would, I would push against that. And I would say, no, we don't want a world where that's the nature of our society, where we're all sort of closing up in our little boxes. I think, um, and I think food especially should be a social thing right. and, it's, and it's more appreciative and it's more enjoyable when it is a social thing. The best thing about food is having food with your friends and family, not eating alone yeah you know well with, with your drone yeah <laughs> your um, drone delivered burrito you yeah know? and i mean i think about this a lot i think that the we before we went on we were talking about depression and big pharma and, and I, a sure. big reason for that is lack of community it's people who don't right. feel a place in their society they don't feel like they're they they are have any worth um and it makes sense that that you become depressed if you mm-hmm. don't have those social connections and Look, we're we're set up to be in groups in in small groups where we feel like we're a part of this community. Um, I was just listening to Sebastian Younger. He wrote the book Tribe. Oh yeah, all about small groups, kind of like platoon size groups. This is how we're meant to to be as humans, and uh, we can survive alone. Like someone can survive in solitary confinement, but they're not going to thrive. No, that's for sure. Definitely not. Yeah, I'm a big fan of farmers farmers markets and. Everyone goes down to the beach at sunset and eats cookies, all that kind of shit. Super yeah. helpful. Yeah. It's and again, it's sort of we live in this world where community is is happening through, you know, technology. It's happening through um, you know, Facebook and you know, there's this idea that's sort of being superimposed. Yeah. And and acting as sort of a replacement to like actual face to face interaction. And I think that's where we live right now and it's sort of pe- post-technology era where we're sort of like okay technology is great we all know that we all know how what amazing things technology can do in our lives the question now becomes to what extent do we use technology in our lives to what extent do we allow it to um you know intersect with our day-to-day living because you're right we are tribal people we we it's fundamental to us that we organize in groups that we have friends, that we have family, that we have, you know, um, a sense of belonging, right? And you cut that out, and it's not a life that I don't think anyone wants to live. And so it's it's a it's a delicate balance. And I think one again, I think of as a post technology era that we're, you know, we're trying to figure out. And I see it in terms of my own struggles with social media. It's like how engaged should I be on social media? Like how much time should this take? in my day or in my week. Yeah. Part of me wants to just get off of it, just not use it. But part of me says, well, no, there's some value here. I'm trying to figure out what that value is, but there is some value there. Or, you know, to what extent, um, you know, am I, you know, socializing, you know, in say like, yeah, a farmer's market or, you know, going out and visiting friends during the weekday when otherwise I'm like just cramming into work, you know, and just, working my brains out uh and then coming home like that's not a fulfilling life either you know so i need to be social so and it's not going to be fulfilling to be on social media it's not going to be fulfilling to just be tweeting my day away yeah Um, it's so weird yeah people do that and yeah we we, know we totally do we totally do but it doesn't it doesn't replace a genuine uh human to human interaction and i think that it it kind of goes back to what we were talking about about before um in regards to trying to outsmart natural systems. Totally. Like being like, oh no, like I don't need a group of people here in the room anymore because I have 10,000 Instagram followers. I have 10,000 friends. Like how many people of those are you going to be, are going to go to your funeral? How many of those people really care about you? Right. Absolutely. Five. Right. Yeah. And I, and I agree. I think that like Anthony Bourdain does a great job of this. just like showing that great conversations happen around food. And yes. I mean, his show isn't, it's, it's about food, but it's not really about food. It's about the culture, culture the and social issues and people. And a lot of those conversations take place over black cod. There we go. That's yeah. right. We had that, you know, this morning for breakfast. That was yeah. good. Yeah, I planted that a little bit, you know, for this conversation. But you, no, damn it, I was duped. It worked. I just brought it up. Yeah, we're, um, what was that called? How, that was really good. It was like a, a, a sm- it was smoked black cod. It was delicious. Yeah, it's what we call our Carmel Canyon smoked black cod. Mm. And again, it's just sort of you know we recognize that a certain amount of folks are going to go to the grocery store and buy black cod and try to do something with it, um, and obviously love it. 
because we've been selling it up here. But um, but some folks are just going to want something quick and easy. And so we, we got this uh, idea through uh, working with fishermen who are like, hey, have you ever tried smoking this? And so we tried smoking it and we're blown away. Um, and again, the idea here is that there's not just... We shouldn't just be limited to smoked salmon, as delicious as smoked salmon is. Um, there's other smoked fish out there. It's amazing. In fact, I would argue that smoked black cod is better, but I'm obviously biased. What's it called? Um, Carmel Canyon smoked black cod. Mm, I love it, it gets caught out of you know Carmel Canyon. Right on, brother. Monterey Canyon. So, yeah, that's the fun part. You know, is food allows these types of conversations. Food is uh, a unifying language, I would say, across all cultures and boundaries. Um, and to your point earlier, it's a place where we get to learn more about each other. It's a place we get to learn more about our environment and learn more about, um, you know, the context in which that food was produced. And that's all stuff that I think we should all pay more attention to because it can be really fun. Good work you're doing, man. <laughs> where can people get in touch with you? Uh, so they can be contacted through my email address, alovewell at realgoodfish.com. Right on. Or they can follow us on social media, on Instagram. Real good fish. Real good fish. R E A L. R E A L. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool, man. Thanks for taking the time. Awesome. Thanks, Tyler. Kyle. Kyle. Damn it. People always call me Why Tyler. Do do that? Just no. Like, so this is super weird. This is super weird. People my whole life have called me Tyler. No, this is strange. It's like a strange glitch in the matrix. Like people who know me, I know that you know that my yeah. name is Kyle, but my entire life people have called me Tyler. I don't know what it is. It's super. Maybe I look like a Tyler. I think you do. I, I have that. a friend. I have a couple Tyler friends, but it's so strange that you just <laughs> said that. Like straight up, probably like over a hundred times. People it's really have embarrassing. Me Tyler. No, it's okay. You know. All right. But next time you can call me Adam. That's cool. Or call me Al because I don't like it when people call me Al. <laughs> I know you're getting beat red now. I love that. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Thanks, Kyle. <laughs> That's our show, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, before you take off, I want to let you know about a monthly email that I'm starting October 1st, where I put together the best documentaries that I'm watching, the best podcasts I'm listening to, the best books I'm reading into one comprehensive email and deliver it to your inbox uh, just once a month. So I'm keeping it you know, super high quality and I won't inundate you every day like a lot of those horrible people do. So if you're interested, head over to my website, kyle.surf. I'm going to leave you with a song by Amadeu and Miriam. This is a song called Magosa. Amadeu and Miriam are a blind couple from Mali, and they play beautiful music. While you're listening to the song, if you want to do me a solid, go into the right bottom-hand corner of your screen, type in The Kyle Tierman Show, and it's going to take you to a new page where you can leave a rating. Give it a few stars. Say something nice about it. It takes one minute, and it really helps other people find the show. Got some good episodes coming up for you soon. Tomorrow, I'm sitting down with... Uh, I have a big day tomorrow. I'm sitting down with Chris Carter, the creator of The X-Files, in the morning. And then I'm driving straight from there to meet three-time world champion Nick Fanning to do a podcast with him. So we got some good ones coming up. Thank you all so much for listening. Get outside. Go do a run, swim, run. I'll see you soon.
Ramawusai.